0: My Parachute Won't Open by Chris Pritchard When Timothy Verissimo looked up, he expected to see a comforting canopy billowing above him. Instead, he saw a mass of twisted cords. As the white and blue striped Cessna 172 climbed higher and higher in the cloud-flecked sky over the North Island, Timothy Verissimo, 16, knew the real challenge had come. He and David Williams, a classmate from Auckland's James Cook High School, had decided that parachuting would be both a demanding and an exciting hobby. And they were ready to try it out on July 26, 1980, a bright, mild winter Saturday, following four hours of instruction as well as emergency procedure training at the Auckland Parachute School. Timothy and David had watched from the ground as others made their first jumps, One girl made a beauty that landed her right on the airfield. In those final moments before his first jump, Timothy was surprised that he didn't feel more nervous. He thought about dinner the previous evening and how he'd joked nonchalantly when his mother had served a roast. ''This could be the last meal I ever have,'' he'd said. His mother had quipped, ''Don't be silly. Only the good die young.'' Norma Verissimo, mother of three children older than Timothy had been anxious about the parachuting project. Then, taking Timothy's side, she told her husband Noe, it's only natural for the youngest to want to prove himself, to do something that the others haven't tried. Timothy and David had reached Piaco Airfield about 10am and spent part of the day on the ground watching other novices make their first jumps. Finally, at 3.30pm, it was time for Timothy's flight. With two other learners, he waited as the aircraft took off. Then the Cessna was at the jumping height of 3,500 feet. Jumpmaster Vic Dempsey, a seasoned teacher who'd seen several hundred novices make their first jumps, had already supervised five trips that day and he joked to put the lads at ease. Dempsey knelt near the open right-side doorway to facilitate jumping. The first jumper, a man in his mid-twenties, leapt out and descended perfectly. Timothy's jump was now less than a minute away. As it drew closer, he felt more nervous, but he stifled his fear by reminding himself that millions of parachute jumps had been made quite safely. Next jumper, Vic Dempsey alerted him. Pilot Trevor Benton slowed the plane as Timothy moved to the doorway. The lad felt the rush of air and facing forward placed his right foot on the wheel, the left on a footrest attached to the wheel strut. Then, gripping the wing strut with both hands, he awaited the command. He wouldn't have to pull a ripcord on this first jump. His static line was secured to a seatbelt attachment point that was designed to open the chute automatically a few seconds after the jump. "'Go!' shouted Dempsey. Timothy leapt backwards, well clear of the plane. But somehow he back-somersaulted, tangling some of the parachute cords round his feet just as the canopy began to unfurl. Timothy felt an exhilarating freedom as he floated down, feet-first unaware that anything was wrong. Wow, he yelled, so this was parachuting. When Timothy looked up, he expected to see a comforting coloured mushroom billowing above him. Instead, he saw a mass of twisted cords attached to a canopy, only partially inflated. Stunned, he jerked on the cords, hoping to spread the chute fully open. The fabric flapped wildly and he plunged on downwards. Now, hurtling to earth at an estimated 90 kilometers per hour, Timothy was horrified. His thrill had become a nightmare. My parachute won't open. Oh, God, why me? he asked silently. I really blew it. He stared at the fouled chute high above him, transfixed. Incredibly, he relaxed. Okay, Lord, he said out loud. It's just you and me. Every few seconds, his body went into a spin which he could not control. Suddenly, he remembered the emergency routine that Ross Drinkwater, the school's director and chief instructor, had taught him. In the unlikely event that your chute fails to open, he'd said, jettison it. As it moves away from your body, it will pull a cord to open your reserve parachute. The reserve parachute! Timothy pulled down the covers on the two releases. "'tugged firmly on the loops beneath "'and looked up to see his emergency chute start to open. "'Then, with a dull thud, "'he slammed into the earth of a farm paddock adjoining the airfield. "'Timothy Verissimo had remembered too late. "'The dozen or so members of the Auckland Parachute Club at the airfield "'who'd watched him plunge earthward stood in shock, unable to speak. "'Then Ross Drinkwater ran to telephone for an ambulance,' and the others raced across the airstrip towards the spot where they'd seen Timothy hit the ground before bouncing farther away. Only Ross Drinkwater didn't run. He'd seen parachute accidents before and knew that when a chute didn't open, it meant certain death. Such a lively, likeable boy, he thought. What a tragedy. What a fearful shock for his family. The onlookers found the lad lying still, The broken bone of his left upper arm was rammed into the ground like a stick. About two meters away, a depression in the peaty ground bore the outline of Timothy's body, marking the spot where he'd first struck. He's dead, somebody said. For sure he's dead! Yet miraculously, Timothy wasn't dead. Regaining consciousness, he opened his eyes and fought desperately to get his breath. Timothy raised his head a little cocked it to one side and said, ''Sorry, I made a mess of that. I really blew it.'' ''Ross!'' a woman shouted with joy, ''He's alive!'' Ross broke into a run. He couldn't believe it. Nobody dared to move Timothy for fear of aggravating his injuries. After 25 minutes, an ambulance came. Again, Timothy lapsed into unconsciousness as driver Keith Bright and attendants Brian McConaughey and Laurel Amon raced along winding roads to Thames Hospital, some 50 kilometres away. Surgeon Dr Ian Hamilton and a team of two doctors and several nurses were waiting. They weren't optimistic about Timothy's chances of surviving the trip. Dr Hamilton made a quick examination. Amazingly, Timothy's spine was undamaged, but he had five broken bones in his left foot and fractures of his left ankle, left femur, right pelvis, left upper arm and in both bones of his left forearm. His lungs had partially collapsed and air in the chest cavity prevented them from expanding. The hospital listed Timothy's condition as critical. His mother arrived sitting all night at his bedside while the hospital team worked on his collapsed lungs and broken bones. Within 48 hours, Timothy was off the danger list. The hospital staff were amazed at his recovery, explains Dr Hamilton. It was a remarkable stroke of good fortune that he fell on peaty ground and on his side instead of flat on his back. But that alone would never have saved him. His youth and determination to live did the rest. Over the next three weeks, Timothy underwent six operations to repair his fractured limbs. Dr Hamilton reconstructed Timothy's left ankle and inserted a metal screw to hold one of the bones in place. A metal rod was inserted into his left femur, and more surgery on his upper left arm repositioned the bone so that it would set precisely. Cards and letters arrived, 300 of them from friends and well-wishers. Ambulance men Keith Bright and Brian McConaughey even visited to check stories that Timothy had made such a remarkable recovery. Says Bright, When we picked him up, I would have bet my boots that he hadn't long to live. Timothy spent 77 days in the hospital and goes back periodically for checkups. He may need surgery to straighten his left arm. Apart from a limp, a legacy of his ankle injury, and scars, he bears no other signs of his incredible escape. From time to time, Timothy dreams of the open skies. Someday soon, he plans to don a parachute, climb into a Cessna, and, as he says, this time, get it right. For more RD talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.